Good morning, everybody. My name is Spencer Meisner. I'm part of the staff team here at Forest Grove as well. Um, if you are someone who interacts with um, new believers, uh, curious not new believers, maybe curious non-believers uh, on, a, on a consistent basis, you might run into the question, what is the main goal of a Christian? Or what, what does it mean to live a Christian life? Um, and depending on who you are, you would have different answers about what that is. Um, and maybe even depending on what generation you come from, you might have different answers on, on what that is. Uh, we'll look back at a few here from, from history. So all the way back to the, to the Westminster Catechism, which many of you are probably very familiar with. Uh, they would say that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So that's a, a nice one-sentence um, summary of, of what, it, what Christian's life is for. Um, our MB Confession of Faith doesn't really have a distinct one sentence, but the conclusion of their paragraphs on the mission of the church um, says this, the gospel of God's kingdom finds complete fulfillment in the great commandment and the great commission. They would say that if believers are living out the great commandment and the great commission, that they're fulfilling the kingdom of God and, and up to its full fulfillment. The writer of Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, said it this way, It may be said that the chief purpose of life for any one of us is to increase, according to our capacity, our knowledge of God by all the means we have and to be moved by it to praise and thanks. But no doubt he was an intellectual, so he had more of a, a knowledge bend to what he said. And then somewhere along the line in the 90s and 2000s, somebody said, Love God, love people, nothing else matters. Um, it's hard to find where that quote came from. Maybe nobody wants it attached to their name, but uh, it's there, and it's all over quote boards and everywhere on the internet right now. Um, and all of these, I'd, I'd say, are good. I don't know if any of them are necessarily complete, and maybe, I mean, people who wrote the Westminster Catechism are far more intelligent than I am. Um, but it's, I think it's really difficult to summarize the goal of Christians or the way the Christian life is to be lived into one sentence. And it's easy to say, oh, our culture wants it in one short sentence. We like Twitter. We like, you know, hot takes in the media. But I mean, the Westminster Catechism wrote it in one sentence a long, long time ago, way before Twitter existed. Um, so as difficult as it is to pin it down into one short sentence, I think Ephesians 4 actually comes pretty close in six verses. And so we've been working our way through Ephesians as a church for the last little while, and uh, if you'll open your Bibles to Ephesians 4, I, I get to tackle the first six verses with you this morning. Um, and I think this actually gives a pretty clear direction on the purpose of the church. So we'll read those first, uh, first six verses of Ephesians 4. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul starts with the words, therefore, when he's giving this, this six-verse look into the Christian life, which means... This is in relation to something else, right? That's nothing new to you. So 
if we look back at the first three chapters of Ephesians, we see lots of conversations about um, God's grace, God's power, God's love, our, our calling as Christians, and also Jesus bringing together the Gentiles and the Jews into one church. That's kind of where we've been for the last little while, talking about the mystery of the church and how it exists. Um, and chapter 4 is, is kind of a practical walking out of these things. So if you look back um, right before, at the end of chapter 3, um, it says, the very famous verses, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Therefore, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So because of the great power of God, and because he is able to do abundantly more than we can ever ask or imagine, that's why we do this. That's why we walk in humility, gentleness, patience, and everything else that he talks about. It's also important to note that obedience in Scripture follows grace. So we see these great things that God offers us, his power, his love, but also his grace and mercy, and that moves us to obedience. God acts first, and we react to him. That is our obedience, in reaction to his love and grace to us. And that's why Paul starts this with, therefore. Because we are supposed to live according to our calling because of how great God is. Um, Basically, if you were to give a summary sentence... I want to stay away from that. But if you were to give a summary sentence of what the rest of Ephesians looks like, it would be just this. Live worthy of your call, focused on unity. That's where this is pointing. It's pointing towards unity. And John Stott, who is a great pastor, um, gave uh, a bit of a view into what um, the closing chapters of Ephesians really look like, what they talk about. So he says this. The closing chapters of Ephesians say that we must cultivate unity in the church Purity in our personal lives, harmony in our homes, and stability in our combat with the powers of evil. Which is a lot. (laughs) And it's only, what, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6. You get three chapters to slam all that into. To cultivate unity in the church, purity in our personal lives, harmony in our homes, and stability in our combat with the powers of evil. That is a hefty call. (laughs) That is a big deal, and it's hard to do for us. But we know that this is in response to how great God is, right? We get to do these things because God is so great, which means he does them through us. It's actually also a call to submitting to Jesus' authority. Because in this passage, in these six verses, Paul doesn't use the word Christ, at least in the translation I'm using, which is typically the word that he uses when talking about things like salvation and love and grace and the happy parts of Jesus, right? Right? But what he does use is the words Lord, God, and Father, all of which are um, words that kind of command a bit of authority, right? We know that Lord was not just used for Jesus. It was used for anyone above. Um, God is, is a high, high above God. And Father, too, was there was discipline involved. There was authority. There was rules to follow. All of these words that he uses to describe Jesus and the Father are all authority-driven. So, we have great grace, great love, great mercy, and we're to follow that under the guise of Christ. 
And thankfully, we can do that because God is full of grace and mercy. And the authority piece comes, of course, from when Jesus makes his great claim that all authority on heaven and earth is given to him. And for us to understand what it means to actually live under the authority of Jesus, we actually have to try and grasp what it means for all authority in heaven and on earth to be Jesus's. And that's, that's actually tough, because when we start to think of the things that we want to own, we have to also admit that they actually belong to Christ. They belong to the Lord. All authority, everything that we look at, everything we see, everything we want, that actually belongs to him, and he is the ultimate authority over everything, which also kind of reminds you to submit to it, right? So then the question is, how do we walk in a manner worthy of our calling? If that's what it tells us to do, if that's what Paul is saying, how do we walk in a manner worthy of our calling? Well, I think in order to do that, you've got to know what your calling is, right? You have to know what you're called to, which, again, happens in the first three chapters in different places. But I think verses 2 and 3 kind of lay it out in a, in a few different words. Our calling is humility and gentleness. Our calling is patience. Our calling is showing tolerance for one another in love. And our calling is being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. That's our calling. If you want to give a one sentence, that's our calling as the church. A life that God calls us to is, is marked with humility, gentleness, patience, tolerant love, and peacekeeping. And it sounds a lot actually like the fruit of the Spirit, right? Which is fruit of the Spirit? A lot of mumbling. Yeah, good. That's, that's what it is, yeah. That's good. Many of you know that, and that's great, right? The fruit of the Spirit is, I have it down here, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all good things. So no doubt that if those are the things that come from the Spirit, of course those are similar things that we're called to be in the world, right? It makes sense. That our calling would be humility and gentleness and patience and peacekeeping and tolerant love. That's what we're called to. That's our, that's our summary sentence. That's our, our call as the church, as part of the global church. And it starts inward-focused and moves outward, which I really like too, right? We focus on being humble in ourselves. We focus on our own humility. And it should move us towards gentleness, move us towards patience, and move us towards tolerant love and peacekeeping in the world. We look inwardly, lower ourselves, and we are moved to great things. Um, a guy named Klein Snodgrass, which is not only the best name I've ever heard, but also a commentator on Scripture, uh, he says this, an understanding of God's work is always an attack on the ego. Not to obliterate or humiliate the self, but to bring it into relation with God and to redirect its interests. In losing life, we find it. I, lo- I love that. I love that. An understanding of God's work is always an attack on the ego. And it's never to, to ruin ourselves or ruin our self-confidence or ruin who we are. But it's to realign and redirect our priorities. When we understand God more, it should be pointing us back to saying, that's who I want to serve. Once you know him more, it should be saying, that's the one I want to serve. It's an attack on your ego because... Our human nature, I don't think, at least I think of myself, in my own human nature, 
biologically, I don't want to serve something else. I want to do what's right for me. It's, it's hard to lay down your life and submit to God. And hopefully, through discipleship and, and through being trained and through being transformed by Jesus Christ, it becomes easier for us. That is the goal. But it's difficult because it's actually kind of the opposite of, of how we exist because of the sinful world and the brokenness that exists within us. So let's look at each one of these things. Humility, patience. Oh my gosh, I'm forgetting this. Humility, patience, gentleness, tolerant love, and peacekeeping. Let's take a look at those. So humility. This is not a new passage to you. It's very, very famous. Philippians 2 says this. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Hefty, right? If we were supposed to be modeling Jesus... That's, again, a tough call to live up to. But I like, I like the terminology that he uses where Jesus emptied himself. I think that's, that's interesting terminology to hear from our Savior, but also for us to model. Because I don't know what it means to necessarily empty myself for the sake of others. But what I do know is that humility is often the harder decision. So if you find yourself in a situation and you, and you think, what is the humble thing for me to do right now? It's probably the harder one, the one that might set you back financially or by time or by resources or something like that. It'll likely be the more difficult option. That's often what humility is because it's sacrificing something for the sake of others, right? It's laying down your own life, putting your interests, putting your own interests second to the interests of someone that you're facing and that you're dealing with. And maybe this is because I'm a child of the 90s, but when I think of humility, I actually think of Aladdin. And yeah, he was a thief, and he was a liar, and he used the genie to, you know, fall in love with Jasmine. Um, but the scene that I think of is right after he's in the market, and he's singing his song, of one jump ahead of the bread line, he does all of his stealing, and he does all these cool things, and you see how cool Aladdin is, he's like jumping over stuff, and you know, as a kid, you're like, this, this guy's the best. What he ends up with is he ends up with a loaf of bread. And he sits down and he looks at his buddy Abu, who's a monkey for some reason, and he breaks the bread in half and he hands it to Abu. And Aladdin sits there and is about to take a bite, and out of the, like, over here he sees two kids rummaging through some garbage. And the kids see him and they get, they get scared because they know they're doing something wrong. They shouldn't be going in this garbage. And Aladdin goes, oh man, <laughs> has this moment of humility. And Abu looks at him, and he sees what he's going to do, and takes a giant bite out of his loaf of bread. And Aladdin gets up, and he goes over to the kids, and he goes, here, take it. Because he knows that he can go get more bread, even though it's illegal for him to steal it. He knows that he can go get more, but these kids have no shot. Right? And, and, and through the discipleship of Aladdin, <laughs> Abu actually looks at his bread, swallows the piece that he had, and also gives his bread to the kids. And I don't know why this is the, the sight in my head that I have of humility, but I see Aladdin sitting there in his regs, right? He's not, he hasn't pretended to be the prince at this point. 
He's sitting there in his rags. He literally had to steal in order to eat this evening. And he sees two kids that are hungry, and he goes, all right, you take this bread. And it's actually a really small part of the movie. There's not really many references to it again. You can see that Aladdin likes kids a couple times in the movie, but no one praises him for what he does. And that's also often how it is with humility, right? If you're humble, typically you're not standing on the street corner telling everyone how humble you are. <laughs> if, you're, if you're someone who's full of humility, you're doing it in the shadows. You're doing it behind the scenes. And you never really get praise for it. But know that your Heavenly Father sees you, because that's what we're called to do. And he's pleased with that. There, I'm done with Aladdin references now. I made my wife listen to the, that One Jump Ahead song multiple times yesterday, just so I had it in my head. Uh, next up, we have gentleness and patience. These two kind of go hand in hand a little bit. Um, a great quote that I have here is, is a way to show gentleness and patience is, is this. Bearing with one another in love. That is, making allowances for the faults and failures of others, or different personalities, abilities, and temperaments. And it is not a question of maintaining a facade of courtesy while inwardly seething with resentment. It means positive love to those who irritate, disturb, or embarrass. Bless you. That's how you are gentle, and that's how you are patient. Bearing with one another in love. That's a way to be gentle. That's a gentle act. And often it will take much patience because, as he says, it means positive love to those who irritate, disturb, or embarrass. Often those who take the most patience are the ones who frustrate you the most. That makes sense. This is a way for us to be gentle in our world and patient in our world, to take care of others. This is a calling that we have, and it comes from understanding God better. It comes from knowing his grace and mercy and love, and that should be flowing out of us. One of our calls with the church, to take care of others. Uh, tolerant love. I think the word tolerance has a lot of negative connotations next to it. We talk about tolerance in a lot of different areas nowadays. But I don't necessarily think it means accepting everything blindly. But what I do think it means is is loving people for the sake of unity. And I think that's what it's getting at here because the next part is, uh, the next thing Paul mentions is um, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit by loving others and tolerance. So I'll give you some examples of this. Um, SEWA is a Saskatoon Evangelical Youth Workers Association, um, a group of youth pastors and youth ministers that meet uh, once a month at the Youth for Christ buildings that I'm a part of. And we're from a bunch of different denominations, and there's even people outside the evangelical world who join us. And our goal is not just to see what other people are eating for lunch. Our goal is actually to encourage each other, strengthen each other. Um, so if someone says, hey, I, I don't, I, I'm having this issue with my youth ministry. Here's what's going on. Some other youth pastor are going to say, oh, I dealt with that last year. Let me tell you how we got through it. It's, it's us coming together to strengthen the body of Saskatoon. We want the youth ministries of Saskatoon to all flourish. We don't care what building you're in. We don't care what end of the city you're in. We just want kids to be loved. And so we meet once a month to do that together. Sometimes we worship together. Sometimes we do have some teaching. But it's always to encourage each other and to spur each other on to good things. Uh, we have SEMF that goes on in the city, which I think Harry's here can correct me. It's the Saskatoon Evangelical Ministerial Fellowship. 
so many acronyms. Um, and they had a prayer summit a couple weeks ago. And it's pastors from Saskatoon, again, from the evangelical side of the world, um, that come together and do very similar things. But on their prayer summit, they actually had some Catholic men who joined them as well. And it was all for the sake of unity. They wanted to build each other up. They wanted to pray for Saskatoon. That's what their whole weekend was about. And I'll also mention Harry's work with the Catholic Evangelical Dialogue, and many of us, and many of people in our body as well. The whole reason that exists is Harry sitting down with some Catholics, some Evangelicals, and discussing what they have in common. It'd be so easy to sit around and bicker about who's right about this and who's right about this, and I think that'd be a really easy thing to do. I think that uh, many of us probably have done that at some time. Um, but their goal is just to find out what they have in common. They want to build unity. We, we are right across the street from a, from a huge Catholic church. And for the most part, we don't really have much interaction with them. But actually what P- Paul is calling us to here is tolerant love. So regardless of the differences that we have, the differences in theology, um, we're actually supposed to be coming together for unity, and we're supposed to be loving each other towards unity. It doesn't mean throwing away the things that you believe in. I, I, I know Harry has said multiple times that there are certainly things that he disagrees with and that they find in this, in this group of people there's disagreements, but that's okay. Their goal is love and unity with each other. And that's what we're called to. Regardless of who we interact with, our goal is actually unity within the church. And so tolerant love doesn't mean you just accept everything and you, everyone gets a giant hug at all times. It means that maybe you actually look past some differences in order to care for someone in order to build unity within the global church. That's tolerant love. And I think what we take for granted in Saskatoon is the unity between churches in our city. It's actually, our churches are actually very tight-knit. Uh, I know Bruce has told this story from the stage before, but many times when he meets someone who comes to, who comes to our Atchard site and who says, oh yes, I came from such and such a church, Bruce's first answer is always to say, oh yeah, I know the pastor there, he's a friend of mine. Just to show that there is no animosity. That if they have something bad to say, they realize, okay, well, (laughs) I'm going to back that up a little bit because they're friends. And for Bruce to say, we're actually all together in this. Our city cares about Jesus. And our city cares about bringing people to Jesus. And that's something that we actually have really well here in Saskatoon. I'm going to jump ahead. Peacekeeping is another thing that we're supposed to be doing. Um, The New Century version of of verse 3 says, You are joined together with peace through the Spirit, so make every effort to continue together this way. Every effort to stay together in the unity of the Spirit. Matthew 5 says this, Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come present your offering. Romans 12 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. There's way more that I could be pulling from Scripture about peacekeeping. This is actually a big part of what we're called to do, is actually just to bring peace within each other, within our friendships, within our families, between churches. This is actually a really big part of it. We can't be fighting about who's right about what or who has the best young adults group or who's right about the baptism. Our goal is actually unity, always. That needs to be what we strive for within the global church. And this means that 
we often have to give up a lot of pride in order to do that. Right? We have to give up what we hold so tightly to because we have to be right about this because we want to actually care for other people and we want unity within the church. The global church. That's what we want. So what does this mean? How does this work for us? Well, I have, I have some examples. Uh, an example of humility and gentleness. I have another, another large quote here. Our churches are filled with people who outwardly look content and at peace, but inwardly are crying for someone to love them, just as they are. Confused, frustrated, often frightened, guilty, and often unable to communicate, even with their own families. But the other people in the church look so happy and content that one seldom has the courage to admit his own deep needs before such a self-sufficient group as the average church meeting seems to be. There's nothing wrong with being happy. (laughs) That's a good thing. But I think an example of humility and gentleness within our church is just to be real. How many times this, this morning did someone ask you how you were doing? I'm going to say average five or six times for most of us. If you were actually honest with them every time and say, you know what? This morning my son projectile vomited twice. Once in my office. <laughs> Once all over my wife, which is why she's not here. That's real. And like, that's such a minor thing, right? But for us, if we're actually hurting inside and someone asks how you're doing, be real with them. Because likely they're hurting as well. And that is a way to be humble and to be gentle with the people around you. Just be real. An example of patience and tolerant love. Walk through hard things with your kids. Walk through hard things with your friends. Being gentle, as we mentioned before, means that we're often, we have to be patient with those who who annoy us or those who have issues or things that they want to talk through with us. But understand that that transformational transformational discipleship takes time. It never happens overnight. It never happens overnight. Digging in deep with someone that you care about and committing three to five to 12 to 25 years with them to walk through their discipleship is actually quite important. It's how you show patience. Peacekeeping. I'm guilty of this. My family fights. I'm sure many of us are in the same boat. Some of us are even just holding on to us being right about one fight we had with a family member five years ago. And we can't let that go because we want to be right. I know that Jesus actually wants us to be peacekeepers with each other. So much so that he said, if you're at the altar asking for forgiveness from God and you know that your brother has something against you, you have to go to him and make it right before you ask for forgiveness from the Father. Again, very hard to do. And yet, that's what we're called to. We're called to making peace with one another. All of these things point to unity. They all do. Humility, gentleness, patience, tolerant love, and peacekeeping. They all point to unity. So maybe part of the church's mission is to be unified. When Jesus came, he broke down barriers between Jews and Gentiles to say, you know what? Everyone is welcome in the church. Everyone is welcome in his church. So that's our goal, is actually to do all these things and strive for unity within the church. That's how we live a life worthy of our calling, for one spirit, one body, one Lord, 
one faith, one God, one Father who is over all, through all, and in all.